Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Plan Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Deuteronomy chapters 8 through 11 and 26 and 27. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I've included all the links in the show notes. And if questions come up during the course of your reading, please ask them at bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital A lowercase S-K hyphen capital O capital T. So much of what we know about the Bible is based on how the stories we hear are framed. For example, children all learn about Noah and the Ark from Sunday school, but it isn't often framed as God drowned almost every human as a way of dealing with sin. Often it's a lot more like Noah trusted God and built a boat, so you can trust God also. And I think the beauty of scripture is that both interpretations are correct. There's something to be learned from both of these, whether how seriously God takes sin or whether uh, how, how much we can trust God. And this is part of what Christians mean, I think, when we call the Bible the living word of God. That the God's word is living and active and constantly being used and, and applied in different ways. And in Deuteronomy, we revisit several of the narratives we've already seen in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, but the framing is slightly different. This isn't narrative for narrative's sake. We're not just learning the history of Israel, as important as that is. Rather, in Deuteronomy, we have a skilled preacher and orator using specific narratives to frame a larger point. Moses' driving argument, at least in the first half of of the chapters we read this week, involves God's eyes being fixed upon both the Israelites and the promised land they're inheriting. This means that Moses isn't going to tell the Israelites a story of their own victory and success. Rather, he reminds them that God has always been looking out from the, looking out for them from the beginning and will continue to watch over the Israelites as they enter the promised land. We can, we can track this red thread particularly throughout chapters 8 through 11. In chapter 8, for example, we see God's faithfulness has been most evident when the Israelites have been at their most needy. This should cause the people to sit up and to be careful as they prosper in the promised land. In chapter 9, through retelling the golden calf story, reminding the Israelites of their constant rebellion and stiff-neckedness, Moses drives home that God sees everything they do. God's not giving them the promised land because of their actions, but rather in spite of them. In chapter 10, Moses gives the people a word picture, an analogy to remember God's faithfulness using the idea of circumcision of the heart, an idea that's going to take on new life later in the prophets and in the New Testament. In chapter 11, the gauntlet is thrown. God sees all that Israel does. So, will Israel choose blessings or will Israel choose curses? In all of this, God is clearly active. God has elected to be personally involved in the people of Israel, self-identifying, not just as I am, but as I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So let's break these first four chapters down a bit more. 
We'll start with Deuteronomy 8. And and here we see a phrase that Jesus is going to echo in his wilderness temptations when Satan comes to him and tells him, hey, you know, make bread for yourself. Hey, throw yourself off a building. Hey, bow down to me and worship me. Uh, And when Satan tells him, go ahead and turn these rocks to bread, Jesus replies, humans live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. And this is directly from Moses' uh, sermon in Deuteronomy 8. So frequently, I think we feel satisfied after nourishing our appetites, whether that's uh, a long night of sleep, whether that's eating a a big meal. Uh, But what this phrase offers us is a concise summary of the point that Moses makes in this chapter. That's, we are called never to rest on our laurels. We're we're called never to uh, go go in a God coma, as it were, like a food coma after Thanksgiving dinner. We don't have God comas or spirit comas. Yes, a time of Sabbath is crucially important to rest your body, ease your heart, hone your mind. However, we are not called ever to be spiritually complacent. Not ever. When we stop looking to God for deliverance, that's when we begin to believe we deserve all that we have. And this is a recipe for disaster. The hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, comes to mind here. One of the stanzas says, All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. We only know the depths and greatness of God's faithfulness, when we put ourselves in positions where we can't make it on our own. Now, to be clear, we're not called to be foolish stewards of what God has given us, being careless with our lives or with our livelihoods, but we are called sometimes to be willing to fix what doesn't seem to be broken, to leave behind a sure and solid thing if God is calling us elsewhere. In other words, we cannot risk becoming stagnantly content with our situation. God is never done with us. Even in the promised land, God is always at work. Now, Deuteronomy 9 begins the important work of decentering the people of Israel. If you've explored questions of racial or social justice, you might be aware of this idea of decentering. It's the process of reorienting the world around you so that you are not at the center. Your lived experience, your talents, your qualities, these aren't, in other words, necessarily the norm for every human being. Now, if you've tried to practice decentering, you know how hard it can be, but it's worth it. By decentering self, we make room in our lives to see the ways that God is at work in and among other people and in and among other communities. And Israel, in the invasion of the promised land, if, if they can decenter themselves, they can see that they are God's instrument not to reward themselves for their faithfulness. They haven't been altogether faithful, right? But to drive out the Canaanites because of their sin. Israel in this situation is not the subject In other words, Israel is the object. The subject are the Canaanites. God is operating using the Israelites to teach the Canaanites something. Sometimes in our lives, we will be the subject. We will be the protagonist. At other times in our lives, we will be a bit player. We will be an object used to help a a protagonist along another subject. 
Sometimes the part we play in God's story is less about our actions and more about other people. Sometimes the part we play in God's story orbits around how God uses us to show others the truth about who God is. And because of Israel's experience with the golden calf, they can rest assured that it isn't their moral uprightness that caused God to usher them into the promised land. Indeed, they can't boast in any capacity about receiving the land. This decentering is so important for Israel to practice. Now, early in Deuteronomy 10, Moses makes an incredibly important theological move. In light of the failure of Israel to live up to God's expectations, in light of their stiff-neckedness and their regular rebellion, well, Moses intuits there must be something wrong with the human heart. Because if there's not, then why on earth would God have chosen the Israelites? As Jeremiah will later say, the heart can be desperately wicked. But Moses' innovation comes here with the idea of the circumcision of the heart. Even at this time, Moses realizes that just following the Torah, the letter of the law, that's insufficient in some deep way. There's more that's expected of followers of Yahweh. In order to fear God, in order to walk in God's ways, to worship God truly, to keep God's commandments, which are all the same thing, by the way, There needs to be a change in one's heart. Just as covenant-keeping males of Israel marked their reproductive organs with circumcision as a sign of trust that God would continue to give Israel children, so too must God's covenant people now mark their hearts with a sign of trust that God would continue to offer us grace. What we love what we pursue, what we desire, all of these must come from a heart that has been changed by God. And we can trust that if we circumcise our hearts, God will order our desires rightly. Logically speaking, this move to circumcise our hearts is a great move. Let's change our hearts. This is effectively another way of saying we need to repent. But practically speaking, what does this mean? How can we measure this? Well, Moses goes on later in chapter 10 to give commands about the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. Uh, When we have hearts marked by God's grace, we recognize that God chose us not because of any righteous thing we did, but only according to God's mercy. And so we ought to extend mercy to anyone else who might be in need of God's love and mercy. We are never beyond that need. In fact, a British theologian and author named G.K. Chesterton was once approached uh, by a newspaper who had mailed out to several well-known authors and asked them, what do you think is wrong with the world? Now, G.K. Chesterton has a wonderful British wit and sense of humor, and is very concise as well, and, and he sent back a, uh, effectively a two-word answer. It had a, you know, the beginning and ending, but then the body of the letter was two words. He said, Dear Sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. When we know in our heart of hearts 
that God chose us, not because we are what's right with the world, but because in God's mercy, God has chosen what is wrong with the world, then we're freed to share that mercy with others. We don't need to worry about continuing to merit God's mercy. Rather, we can see orphans, widows, sojourners, anyone whose society marginalizes, and we can share God's love with them. And that doesn't mean enforcing God's laws against them. Let's be very clear here. That means offering them the same mercy that God offers us. And God offered us that mercy before we began even to try and obey the laws that God has given us. Now, having a circumcised heart doesn't simply mean you go to church regularly and, or, or sometimes read your Bible. I mean, those are good practices, don't get me wrong. But having a circumcised heart actually means that your belief in God has affected your values, your priorities, your time. Now, with all this in mind, Moses reminds Israel in chapter 11 that they cannot hide from God's watchful countenance. God's eyes are on the Hebrews. God's eyes are on this promised land. And while that might be good news for those who practice justice and righteousness, those who live their lives in the light, for those who do their work in secret, who don't practice justice and righteousness, this is bad news. God deeply loves justice, and those who pervert justice cannot do so outside of God's vision. And this should set Israel's priorities in order. I mean, first, we follow God's commandments to honor God, right? And then second, well, we do right by one another to honor God. Uh, third, we do right by strangers to honor God. And, and, and then only after that do we anticipate God's blessings that we can accept and then passing those on, using them to bless others. Israel could choose this path. Moses begins describing the ceremony to ratify the covenant before entering into the promised land here. He, he begins to talk about Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebel. Uh, and, and Moses is going to set two paths before the Israelites, a path of blessings and a path of curses. And it's up to them which way they decide to travel. But before Moses does this, he needs to recapitulate all of the laws that have come in Leviticus and Numbers. And uh, chapters uh, 12 through 25 are, are a summary treatment of Israel's laws containing much of what we see in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, uh, although I believe that there are some that are unique to Deuteronomy. We're going to look at these at the end of year three, at the end of 2023, when we take a second lap through the Old Testament and hit the laws and the genealogies. But for now, we're going to jump up to chapter 26, jumping over all of these laws uh, and get to where Moses describes what it looks like to offer part of our earnings to God. The tithing of the first fruits, strangely enough, isn't described as being a 10% tax off the top. Now, some churches will insist that believers give at least 10% of what they earn to the church. And while some churches permit 10% taken after taxes, others insist on every believer giving 10% off the top, 10% from your gross income, 10% of your first fruits, in other words. Now, let me be very clear. There's nothing wrong with this. This is a good practice and a good discipline to get into uh, or, or even to, to stretch yourself into, to give part of what you've been given. But this isn't directly commanded in Scripture. 
In fact, the Hebrew Bible expects more than 20% of a person's wages or produce to be given away, some to the Levites, some to the temple, and some for the poor. That's how important the have-nots are to God. Tithing doesn't just go to the religious institutions, but directly to those who are impoverished. This is another way that God's eyes are on Israel. God's eyes are on the promised land to see if Israel, in the secret of their own heart, with their own money, does right by the have-nots. Now, in chapter 27, Moses begins leading the people in a solemn ceremony of ratification, of accepting the blessings and curses that would come from obedience or disobedience. Mounting huge stones atop mountains with the laws of the land written upon them, that's something that has precedence in the time of Israel's entrance into the Promised Land. Hammurabi's code was written like this. And having two large mountains reminding the people that they are always choosing between two paths, this was likely a helpful concrete illustration of how, no matter where you are, you must always try to choose life by choosing justice and righteousness. And, and this is true, not just of the actions that other people can see, this isn't just an optics game, but also of the actions people wouldn't see, those done in secret. Many of the, the 12 uh, statements that Israel agrees to in this solemn uh, ratification ceremony, these are explicit, these are commands that, that were actions people would have done in secret. And Israel is charged not to try sneaking around, but to serve God wholeheartedly, even when no one else is looking. God's eyes are on us just as they were on Israel. Will we allow God to circumcise our hearts, to remind us that we are fully and completely dependent upon God's mercy? Or will we presume that we've been successful on our own and therefore can forge ahead with or without God? In other words, will we choose life, obedience, justice, or death, disobedience, injustice? Will we be a people of Mount Gerizim, or will we be a people of Mount Ebel? That's all for Deuteronomy 8 through 11, along with 26 and 27. Next week, we'll look at Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 33, where Moses discusses in more detail the blessings and curses that Israel may receive, and then offers a song and a blessing to the people before dying. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.